0: Well, I hope you heard in those words from Psalm 22 um, what happened to our Savior on the cross because it was a, that is the prophecy of the text that comes to pass that we're going to look at today. So if you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 15, trying to finish up this book of Mark. It's been a long journey. Mark chapter 15, beginning of verse 33. when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Father, we thank you for your word, and We've read quite a bit of it already. But now we ask your blessings on the teaching that it will glorify you and your son Jesus and that you would teach us by it and uh, just give us a glimpse of the glory that is to be found in the cross of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, obviously we're at the section of Mark's gospel that highlights the moment for which Jesus came into the world. He had said in himself back in chapter 10, the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. And so we read here of a terrible, terrible thing, yet it is also the source of the great salvation that we enjoy. We call this Good Friday because God in his infinite wisdom and grace wrought a great good through the sin of evil men. It doesn't seem like a good Friday, but it is a good Friday, at least for those of us who believe. The crucifixion we read began at the third hour, or early in the morning, and at this point that we pick up, it's the sixth hour, or noon, and darkness covers the whole land until that afternoon when finally Jesus uttered a loud cry, and breathed his last. And probably all of us are somewhat familiar with The cruelty of this death, I don't know that I have to go through and try to... I couldn't really explain all the medical stuff that I've read about what happens at a crucifixion. But I think we all know that this is a very cruel death. It usually occurred by exhaustion. And that's the reason for all the scourging and the beating beforehand to exhaust the body and cause it to bleed and suffer. And the beating of the limbs with an iron club that kept people from escaping if they did live past dark but also to hasten death it was truly an awful way to die i don't think i have to make that point josephus the jewish historian in fact described crucifixion as the most wretched way of dying i feel like you can almost hear the suffering caused by it when you say the word crucify or crucifixion it just sounds terrible in fact we have an English word that comes straight from that word, crucifixion. The word is excruciating. You can hear crucified in that word. It means extremely painful, causing intense suffering and even torturing. But I believe it's fitting to give us at least a glimpse of the horribleness of our sin. Sin is a terrible thing, and it brings a terrible death. I think too often we hear, well, sin, the wages of sin is death, and we just think about passing away. But I mean... Sin is terrible, and so sin brings a terrible death. And there's just a little picture of that in the crucifixion of Christ. One who was innocent, never sinned, yet he dies this awful, horrible death. And we know that as we read through the New Testament in its entirety, this is how God's wrath was satisfied, towards sin. That terribleness of our sin and sin itself was atoned for. We spent about four weeks, not too long back, looking at this... The atonement and what it is. We refer to it as the substitutionary atonement. And that's what we unashamedly call it. The old entire Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to this fact that our sin was so terrible and so great that we could never do anything to cover for it or atone for it, which is what that word atone means. Talk about that more in a minute. But if that sacrifice that we see in the Old Testament points to the fact that we are so affected and so totally immersed in our sinfulness, so engrossed in it, that it would take one who is not defiled by it, one who is pure, to stand in our place and make this atonement. An undefiled or a spotless lamb only pointed to a truly undefiled, spotless Savior who had never sinned. That word atonement, you may remember It was invented to describe this. There was no word for atonement until Bible translations started. And atonement was invented to describe the reconciliation, a reconciling of alienated parties, a restored broken relationship. It also includes the blotting out of our offenses, which are against God. And it also includes making a satisfaction for wrongs that have been done. This is why we can truly say there's nothing left to be done for the salvation of sinners. It's all been paid. It's all been taken care of. Those spotless lambs and goats just dimly pointed to this great one called Jesus, who was truly unblemished and truly without fault. The God-man, the Messiah, the perfect spotless lamb of God, only he could stand in our place, only he would be able as God and man to endure the wrath of God and become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so the terribleness of the cross was necessary because of the terribleness of our sin and the rebellion that we demonstrated against God. But amazingly, we read Hebrews which tells us that Jesus considered it a joy that was set before him and endured the cross, despising the shame. We see it as a terrible thing. He saw it as a joy. And we saw his struggles a few chapters back as a man in the garden praying to the Father, if this cup can pass from me, then let it pass. And obviously the answer was the cup couldn't pass. He had to drink it all the way down, as it said, to the dregs. And I believe that's what we see here in this Cry of dereliction, where he dereliction, where he calls out, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" It's not that God's turned away or God's not watching, but he at that moment experienced the wrath of the Almighty God poured out on the sin of all who would he would ever save. That must have been some kind of suffering, some kind of anguish. But as John read in the Psalm 22, he cried out to him; he did hear him. It's not that the Father didn't hear. He heard. And so the terribleness of the cross, again, necessary because of the terribleness of our sin. Again, in Titus 2.14, we read, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. The Bible tells us in one place we are bought at a price. It's a great price, the cost of the Son of God. Our sins atoned for, reconciled to God. I urge you, brothers and sisters, when you think of the cross, think of more than just, oh, that's where Jesus died. But be reminded of the glorious substitution that was made there. Somebody who didn't deserve it stood in your place and took everything you deserved that you might receive grace and mercy. We should have been the ones hanging cursed, but instead he was cursed that we might be blessed. He died that we might live. He suffered that we might have joy and peace. Reconciliation happened there. Wrath was appeased there. A mighty gulf was bridged. Unholy men and a very holy God made compatible. It's a beautiful thing that we should never grow tired of hearing. That is the good news of the gospel. Well, does Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, exclaim, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. We can't just read past this without stopping to observe what really happened. Amazingly, most of those standing around that day couldn't see it. Many today can't see it. You can exclaim it and exclaim it, and people can't see it. For many, the cross has become nothing more than just a good luck charm, like a rabbit's foot. We hang it somewhere, we put it up somewhere. But we have to be reminded of the spiritual ramifications. In fact, the eternal ramifications. It's what caused the apostle to say, I've determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In another place, he says, God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he uses the word cross, he means everything that Christ was and is, not just that piece of wood. Now, it's interesting, two more things in this text I I really wanted to point out briefly. Two occurrences that coincide with Jesus' death. One, the curtain temple where the curtain of the temple, we are told, is torn from top to bottom. And this, of course, is the great curtain that hung over or veiled the Holy of Holies, that great meeting place that symbolized, one day symbolized Christ because in the Old Testament, God designed this to be a place where the priest could come in on behalf of the people and meet with God at the ark and at the mercy seat and once a year make atonement for sin. And it symbolized that great place where man could be reconciled to God, but it only symbolized in picture and in an incomplete picture that we know was perfectly fulfilled and completed in Christ. Because now Christ represented the curtain. The New Testament says a curtain made without hands. That curtain was put together by somebody. Jesus is the curtain made without hands. He's the great high priest. And because he's the true temple that we've talked about in the last few weeks, when he died, the curtain was torn from top to bottom, demonstrating it would never be put back together again. Also, in anticipation of what was about to happen uh, some 30 or 40 years later in AD 70, when Rome would just annihilate not only Jerusalem, but lay waste the temple. All the things that Christ had said were coming to pass. And he made a way to God for us. He's our high priest. He goes in for us. We talked about this a little Wednesday night, the beauty of this. In the Old Testament, you had to go get an offering, bring it to the priest, and trust that he would go in and do the correct thing and make proper atonement for your sin. And he would go to the Father on your behalf. Now we have Jesus. Instead of us going to a priest and hoping he would go in, Jesus is going in before us and for us, and now he brings us to the Father. So when Hebrews chapter 4 says come to the throne of grace boldly we can come boldly not because of anything in us but because Christ is our high priest and he was the curtain and he is the holy of holies and he represents everything that God had pointed to prior to him being here and making the sacrifice. He's made a way for us. We can enter Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says this, verse 13 and following. But now Christ Jesus, because of him in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see that? there's no There's no longer this hostility between us and God. It's been abolished. Also he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two so making peace and reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It's an amazing, beautiful thing. Everything that was against us, the law that condemned us has been fulfilled for us. In our place, Christ stood condemned that we might receive grace. It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful picture. This happens. Also, there's this centurion. This is a cool little insertion here this random centurion acknowledges that jesus was truly the son of god i think this is cool to think about when you consider this was his job he was a soldier he had seen no telling how many people die the same exact way so a lot of people will say well the only reason he acknowledged this is because if you read matthew's account he talks about the rock splitting and the dead rising from the dead, tombs opening up and the dead coming back to life and going into cities and seeing people, and that was wild too. But I think that happened. He couldn't see all that happening. He saw Jesus die, breathe his last, and then he said, this man must certainly be the son of God. He'd seen a lot of people die the same exact way, this horrible death. He probably heard people, men cry out all kinds of things. This is called supernatural discernment. This wasn't just a smart man. This wasn't a good observer. This is what happens when God, who caused light to shine out of darkness, shines in the heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's so many people standing watching this, some people cheering it on, some people happy, some people reviling him. This man says, this was truly the Son of God. In much the same way all of us are able to confess that, Maybe you heard the gospel a million times, but from the time you were born until one day your eyes were opened and the scales fell off and your heart was made pliable and you understood that this Jesus is the Son of God and he died for you. We are told in one place in Corinthians that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He cannot because he's unable to understand these things. They are spiritually discerned. We talked about this a few weeks back on Wednesday. It's called effectual calling. I preach the gospel, which I've just done, and I call you to believe if you don't believe. Believe that this is the Son of God, that he died for your sins. But I can call and call and call and call, and that's just the call of the gospel. The effectual call of God comes when God himself enlightens you, opens your eyes, calls you to understand and believe. This is what's happened to this Centurion, and also I believe this other man mentioned, Joseph of Arimathea. It's interesting that Mark points out he was a very prominent member of the council. Guess which council he's talking about? The council that had just, in the middle of the night, condemned Jesus to die and took him to Pilate. But unlike the others, this man was looking for the redemption that was to come. And he was excited to believe in Christ. Somehow he had become a follower, obviously. And if you pick up John's account of this, he, along with another prominent man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, they took together the body of the Lord and prepared it and buried it. Two men that were all through the New Testament, part of something that we have a bad taste of in our mouth about Pharisees and these Uh, Sanhedrin and these councils and all these pious religious men but at least these two seemingly came to faith in Christ which is a great reminder that we shouldn't write people off. I'm the world's worst. Sometimes I think certainly that there's no national politician that could ever be born again. They're too awful and wicked but that's not true. They can be. There's nobody too awful that God can't save them I mean, he saved all of us could equally awful. But these men's lives were changed because of Christ and because of what we've talked about here, because not only his life but also his death and certainly, as we'll read about soon, his resurrection. And I hope that your life has been changed the same way. Consider these things for there certainly is no other way to God. This is the only way. No other way but grace. The grace of God demonstrated in the cross of our Lord. I pray that God will give us more faith as we consider the cross and the one who died there. And we consider this idea of substitutionary atonement to the glory of God the Father. That's what this is about. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. And God, I ask that you would help us to understand even in a a greater and different way than we ever have the cross of Christ and all that it entails I think sometimes it's just like everything else it becomes mundane because we talk about it a lot but it's certainly far from that and so as we celebrate the supper together the communion that we've been promised and given because of this just in our minds the beauty of the cross because it's a death instrument it makes no sense So the instrument itself is not what we celebrate and glory in, but we glory in the one who lived for us and died for us and suffered, shed his blood for us. We celebrate that as we take this cup in obedience to him and we take this bread and we're reminded of his body and his blood until he comes, in Jesus' name, amen.